Going to chapter 3, we will focus in our time this morning on verse 5 together. And as you turn to Jonah 3, let us go to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer as we ask Him to bless our time together in His Word, as we ask Him to speak to us, to reveal His truths to us, to illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might not only know, but that we might also believe the truth of His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come knowing that without You, we are nothing. Father, we come as humble, as meek, as lowly, even as we think of Christ on the day of His birth. Father, such a glorious thing for us to to recognize and acknowledge that because of who Christ is and what He has done, and how He has transformed even our inner man's, that we can now see ourselves truly, that we can see ourselves as creatures, as those who have been created by a holy and infinite and omnipotent God, that we stand before you as those who are not worthy to do so. And so we come as those who are worthy only in Christ and what He has done. So Father, when we come, may we be clothed in Your righteousness, for we are clothed in Your righteousness if we trust in You. What a glorious thing that is for us to just to be able to reflect and meditate on this morning. We're so thankful for Your truth. We're so thankful that we have it delivered to us in Your Word. So my prayer is that You would use it mightily this morning. We pray this in Your name. Well, if you are visiting with us, we have been working through the book of Jonah together on Sunday mornings, and it really has been quite a journey. I've enjoyed every step in the process, seeing Jonah come from his high position as prophet in Israel to his low position in the belly of the great fish as a rebel and sinner. From the beginning of this account of Jonah's life, we have seen God work in all things to prepare Jonah to be the most effective vassal to the people Nineveh. Jonah has rebelled. We've seen that in Jonah chapter 1 as well as in Jonah chapter 2. He has been brought through a storm. He has spent three miserable days and nights in the belly of the great fish. And what we have learned through this book is that God has used all of these events to make him more fit to bring a message of repentance and faith to the Ninevites. And as we saw the sovereign power and purpose of God in the salvation of Jonah, we also see the means of God's salvation in Jonah's ministry to the Ninevites. As we entered into the third chapter of this account of Jonah's life, we saw that Jonah is finally fulfilling his call to the Ninevites. And the very first thing he does as he enters into the city of Nineveh is he begins to proclaim the word of God. We see this in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I trust that you have your Bibles open there. Would you follow along with me? 
Verse 1 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Last time we were together, we began to look at the two primary means by which God saves. And the first is by the word proclaimed. If you're following along in the insert in your bulletin this morning, you see that the first means of God's salvation is the word proclaimed. We saw in Jonah chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 that Jonah is called again to go to the Ninevites. But that he isn't simply called to go, he's also called to proclaim. And to proclaim God's word to them. We saw that the word is a word that he received from God. Jonah did not preach his own message to to the Ninevites. He spoke as God spoke to him. It was a received word. God spoke to Jonah and Jonah spoke to the Ninevites exactly that which God declared to him. We also saw that much like Jonah, we too have received a message from the Lord. And it is contained within the Holy Scripture. And God is also calling each one of us to proclaim that message in its entirety to all as well. The message that we have is the gospel or the good news of Christ that was first delivered by the holy apostles and prophets and was preserved for each one of us in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13 says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. God is calling each one of us to be proclaimers of the good news to all whom we encounter. But then this leads us to the second means by which we experience the salvation of our God. Not only must the word be proclaimed, but the word also must be believed. If you're following along in the bulletin insert, you see there your second fill-in is that the Word of God must be proclaimed and the Word of God must be believed. Notice the Ninevites' response to the Word of God proclaimed in verses 4 and 5. It says this, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, or in forty days, and Nineveh shall or will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
Miracles of miracles. These people who have no thought of the Almighty turn from their wicked ways and give themselves over to the word of the Lord. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 5 is so significant in our passage for this morning. Notice it again for emphasis. It says, the people of Nineveh believed God. Now this is a really interesting phrasing. As soon as I read those words in verse 5, I was reminded of another passage of Scripture that sounds almost identical to those words. I wonder if maybe this morning you even thought of that very same Scripture reference. Let me read it again. And as I read it, ask yourself, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Doesn't that sound awfully similar to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6? And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Imagine if you can this morning, Israel hearing these words for the first time from the prophet Jonah. Imagine the utter astonishment as the Ninevites are catapulted to the same level as their beloved Abraham. What we know from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is that Abraham's access to the promises of God was through faith. And what we learn from Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 is that the Ninevites' access to the promises of God's deliverance is also through faith. There is no difference, beloved. All who come to the Lord come on the basis of trusting the Word of God as it is revealed and as it is proclaimed. All come by faith. Paul certainly emphasized this in his ministry to the Gentiles. We read in Romans chapter 4, verse 9, which you can find in the insert in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Romans chapter 4, verse 9 says this, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
Just a few verses up in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, it says this, a verse that I'm sure is familiar to many of you, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Paul was not alone in his understanding of this truth. We even remember Peter's words at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 6-9. through If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, you are welcome to. But what we find here in Acts chapter 15 is that all the apostles and elders from the early church are gathered to discuss the issue of circumcising Gentile believers. Whether it was appropriate for them to do so. And in the midst of this conversation, Peter declares... This, in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15, says this, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What's the point of all this this morning? Here's the point. From Abraham to Jonah to the Ninevites, And through the believers in the book of Acts, even up to our present day, the truths and promises of God are always received by faith. Beloved, there is nothing we can do in order to earn God's salvation. There are no works that we can perform. There is no ritual that we can observe. There is no merit that we can accrue. Everything we are and everything we have is sourced in God's gift and God's gift alone. And it is always put forward to us to believe. God acts and we receive. Forever and always our access to God's power And grace is through trusting in what God has declared about us and to us. Over and over and over again, not only at the start of our salvation, but every day and every moment after, we keep coming back to these two means. The word proclaimed And the word believed. Now there is nothing spectacular about the means by which we appropriate the promises of God. Aside from the God of those promises himself. You see what faith does 
is it strips us of all of our boasting. Faith throws us upon the mercies and powers of someone else. In salvation, we give ourselves over to what God and God alone can accomplish for us. We throw ourselves upon the mercy of our Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. We trust in His ability and His strength. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you this morning very simply. It's Christmas time, and every year we put candy canes on the Christmas tree. How many of you guys do that? You guys all put, wow, not as many as I would have expected. Oh, let me see, my, see the front row there. My whole family has their raised, hands raised. We put candy canes on the Christmas tree, and, if you, you, and as you can probably imagine, Will is all about candy canes right now, or as he would call them, candy cans. Naturally, Will eats all of the candy canes on the bottom of the tree first. Why? Because those are the ones that he can reach. But when he runs out of candy canes on the bottom of the tree, then he wants, you guessed it, the candy canes at the top of the tree. And Will can't reach the candy canes at the top of the tree. But Will knows someone who can reach the candy canes at the top of the tree. And you guessed it, that would be his dad. And so in order for Will to enjoy the sugary and minty goodness of those candy canes, he must do something. He must call out on his dad for assistance. No, more than that, he must call on his dad to secure those candy canes for him. And so he calls out, Dad, Dad. Can I have a candy can? To which I usually respond, Sure, Will, you can have a candy cane. You understand why Will comes to me to ask for candy canes and not Sarah. Because Will knows, Will knows that I will, not only will I, but that I delight in giving Will a candy cane. And so he comes. And he calls, and he trusts in his dad to do that very thing for him. Now you see, this is a very simple illustration of trusting the Lord. Will must depend upon the strength and ability of another in order to secure his candy cane, much like we too must trust in the strength and ability of God to secure for us salvation from our former selves. And He does so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, ask yourself this morning, can you overcome the penalty of God because of your sin? No. But Christ can and He has in His cross and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself this morning, can you overcome the sinful lusts of the flesh? No, but Christ can and He has in the cross and resurrection. 
Can you overcome the, sin, the sinful anger of the old man? No. But Christ can and He has in His death and resurrection. Can you overcome the sinful gluttony of your former passions? No. But Christ can and He has in His death and resurrection. Can you overcome the sinful pride of self-asserting ego? No. But Christ can and He has in His death and resurrection. And how do we appropriate this power and grace? By believing that what God says of us in Christ is true. God says you have been united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Do you believe that this morning? God says, you have crucified the flesh with its passions. Do you embrace that this morning? Now, I think this proposition has two very important implications. And we see these implications in our text this morning in Jonah chapter 3. Here's the first implication of this reality. The first implication is this. When God speaks, He is declaring reality. When God speaks, He is declaring reality. Notice it with me in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What we see in verse 4 is a declaration of fact. What God is saying to the Ninevites here in verse 4 is that this most certainly will happen if you do not repent. There is no wavering in Jonah's words. He says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. This is a statement of fact. It declares reality. As the events of history unfold in 40 days, the records will report an overthrow of Nineveh. And essentially, the people of Nineveh simply embrace this reality to be true. They believe that what God says about them is fact. This is what it means to believe. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith. We understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author of Hebrews here is referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beloved, that is not a fairy tale. That is not a myth. It is a reality. 
At the beginning of this known universe, God spoke and all things came into being. To believe that is to accept reality. To reject it is to deny reality. Or maybe we could say to deny what is real. When we deny creation, we reject what is actual. Not what is imaginary or made up, but that which is concrete and historical. And therefore, to reject God's word is to reject reality. And beloved, we must be all the more sure that our own lives are not marked by this same kind of unbelief. As believers, we may fully accept the realities of creation and of the incarnation, even of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But as we live our lives, do we fully embrace what all of those realities have accomplished for us? Are we truly living in freedom because God has declared that we are free from our sins in our union with Jesus' death and resurrection? Even that label, believer, is embracing what is true of us, not only in our conversion, but also in our day-to-day existence. God is calling us to believe that which is true of us in Christ at every turn, in every moment, and in every situation. With all of your loved ones and all of your co-workers, when the anger begins to swell up within you, believing that the anger has been put to death in Christ and Christ alone. Believe it. Trust it. Assure yourself of its reality because it is true. We live our lives by faith in the proclaimed Word of God. Colossians 2, 6-7 says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see, beloved, when we believe God, we are simply embracing that which God has already done for us and declared about us as we are united with Christ. And what an amazing reality we have to embrace and believe this morning, even as we think of the Christmas story. Jesus took on flesh in the incarnation so that He might become the Savior of all flesh, both in its penalty and in its power. Again and again and again, we learn from the Word, both read and heard, what Christ has done for us. Notice Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. You can find it on the back 
of your insert bulletin. Notice verse 3, Romans chapter 8. For God has done. He has done it. It has happened. It is a statement of reality rooted in history. And in fact, what God has done. Or, or sorry, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is a statement of reality, of fact. Verse 10, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Notice again, past tense, Christ has done it for you. And He is calling you to believe it, to embrace it, to accept it, to submit to it, and to live it out in your day-to-day lives. Beloved, Christ has set you you free from the penalty and the power of your sin by taking you to the cross and crucifying the flesh with its passions and its desires. Don't believe me? Look at Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Beloved, if you trust in Christ, if you belong to Christ, then the passions of your flesh have been crucified. Do you believe it? Do you embrace it as your true identity and the reality of who you now are in Christ? You see, beloved, this is reality. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. And therefore, He has secured for us an eternal salvation as we embrace this truth of our new birth and our union with Jesus. You have been freed. Your flesh has been crucified. The old man no longer has dominion over you. To deny that, beloved, is to deny reality. It is to reject what is actual. It is to be, by very definition, an unbeliever. But we are not of those who do not believe. We are those who believe. 
And this belief always leads us into action or fruit. This is the second implication that we see in our text. Not only is that which is, or not only is that which God speaks reality, but also when we believe, we act on our belief. Notice it with me again in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. It says this. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You see, the people of Nineveh's belief immediately produced the fruit of true faith. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. This was a demonstration of their grief concerning the Lord's declaration. They truly believed God's word through Jonah and they respond. Their trust in the Lord, their belief in God moves them to action. And beloved, we have much to learn from these believing Ninevites. You see, because true faith always produces action. Or as the Apostle James would say it, living faith always produces works. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17 says this. Again, you can find it on the insert in your bulletin. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now there's a lot that could be said concerning this passage in the book of James. But I just want to focus in on James' main point. His point is that faith without works is an empty faith. Or we could say that faith without works is no faith at all. It is vain or superficial or fake. Let's go back to our simple illustration of the candy canes for a second. What we know is that William knows that the candy canes are on the tree. This is a fact or a reality. You cannot deny it. If you walk into my house right now, you will see that there are still some, although few, there are still some candy canes on my tree. Will knows this. And he knows also that he cannot reach those candy canes by himself. But he also knows that his dad can reach them. So how might he respond to this knowledge? How would this belief in his dad's ability manifest itself? Well, of course, by William asking me to get him a candy cane. And he does often. I'm embarrassing him right now. He's shirking down in his chair. But what we know is that William's belief in his dad produces action. 
True faith always produces action. If you believe a thing, you will follow that belief up with action. It's the, it's the exact same thing that we see in James. If you believe that God is in control of all things, this should produce a boldness and a fearlessness in the face of worldly obstacles. If you believe that God loves the world and is able to save to the uttermost, then this should produce a liberality with the message of God's salvation. If you believe that God is able to overcome the hardness of heart of any individual, much like He did the Ninevites, then this should produce a confidence in you to declare the good news of Christ to any and to all. If you believe that Christ is better than all this world has to offer, then this should produce in you a willingness to deny the pleasures of this world in order that you might enjoy Christ to the fullness. If you believe that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, then this should produce in you a contentment with whatever lot God has called you to. And the list goes on and on and on. You see, the Bible is important to our sanctification because it declares to us the reality of Christ time and time again. And we are called to believe what is declared to be true. But not only to believe it, to embrace it, to submit to it, and to live it out in our lives. The pattern of our sanctification is always to know the truth, to embrace the truth, to submit to the truth, and to live out that truth. This means that if we are struggling to produce faith-filled action, then there is some disconnect happening between those three steps. Maybe this morning you don't know the truth. Well, then we must seek out God's Word. Maybe this morning we don't embrace the truth. Then we must pray that the Holy Spirit would make His truth relevant to us. Maybe this morning we refuse to submit to the truth. Then we must turn to Jesus in repentance and faith trusting that He has secured for us a new mind and heart that desires to bring ourselves underneath God's truth. And as we know God's Word, as we embrace God's Word, as we submit to God's Word, we will begin to see the fruit that it produces in living for God. This is the pattern of salvation. Hear the word and believe the word. Read the word and believe the word. Proclaim the word and believe the word. It is always those two things. And may God continue to impress upon us this morning the importance of knowing and trusting in God's word 
for the salvation even of our own souls. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this truth. Father, in a world that is searching in dark places for what is true and fact and reality, may we give to them a more certain word. May we give to them that which is of no man's private interpretation, but was spoken by God through men as they were carried about by the Holy Spirit. Each one of us holds, probably within our hands and hopefully within our hearts, the precious declaration of the God of the universe who is giving to us the truth of reality. And so, Father, may we embrace it. As we read about those things that are true of us in Christ, may we love and delight in them, and may we desire to see them be manifested in our own lives. Father, and beyond this, may we take that message of salvation in Christ to all those who are enslaved, even to their own sins. We're so thankful for your grace and your mercy this morning, and we pray this in your Son's name.